So we may or may not have slides. We're, we'll give it a minute or two to see if we get them, and if not, we'll just go with that. Tell stories about what I do. I read old handwriting. And, uh, wow. And I write about dead people. No, I do not keep a journal. Uh, sadly, I'm, I'm not recommending that. I mean, all of you should keep a journal. I just don't. Uh, Joseph Smith kept one after the Lord told him repeatedly to do it. He was very dutiful. He, he got a journal the same day or close to the same day. He got Revelation section 85 commanding him to keep a better record. And he wrote in that journal every day for 10 days, and then he took 10 months off. <laughs> and then it was pretty sporadic. We have 1,500 some odd pages of his journals, and they're all really precious. But it was hard for him to do. It didn't, it wasn't, it didn't come naturally. He did it because he knew it was important. Not because it was easy or fun for him to do. And he usually had someone else do it for him. There were about 30 plus pages where he wrote himself. And if he did that, there's a different quality to it. It's really beautiful. He, he tended to uh, sort of dump himself onto the page when it was him writing. Less about where he went and who he visited with than uh, Lord, protect my family, bless my children, uh, help me to be, be all you need me to be. Really beautiful entries. I assume everybody knows where you can get those for yourself. All of that's at josephsmithpapers.org, world's greatest website. Um, I would spend every minute of every day on that website if I didn't have anything else I had to do. And you can get all his journals there, all his revelation texts, uh, increasing amounts of good stuff. Some of the journal, some of the uh, Joseph Smith paper editors are here with us today. Fantastic work. How are we doing? We T minus two minutes, ten minutes. All right. Thank you, sir. Steve Harper, and I am a professor of church history and doctrine here at BYU, uh, and I'm here today in the capacity as the executive editor of the Wilfred Woodruff Papers Project. Uh, Wilfred kept about 10 times or more uh, many papers than Joseph Smith did during his life. Unlike Joseph Wilfred started writing a journal the day he became uh, uh, close to the church or shortly thereafter, and he car carried on that way for almost the rest of his life. So we have thousands of pages of his journals. Uh, Jennifer Mackley, who's our leader, our executive director, has uh, uh, found evidence for something like 39,000 letters he either wrote or received during his lifetime. And we have thousands of those letters still available. And all of that and a whole bunch of other stuff, nine different autobiographies and histories, 
are available at wilfordwoodofpapers.org and more being added to that site every day. So this uh, series of uh, presentations this week, this hour, and this spot are all about the, sort of the fruits that come from the Wilfred Woodruff papers, what we can learn by studying them. And I'm gonna talk uh, today about a solid head, Wilfred Woodruff's leadership between 1887 and 1890. Early in 1887, the United States Congress overwhelmingly passed the Edmunds-Tucker Act. And it was just the latest and strongest in a series of laws that were aimed at the Latter-day Saints headquartered in Utah Territory. This act dissolved the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and it undercut the gathering of its immigrant members. It disenfranchised women in the territory of Utah and it compelled those who were polygamous wives to testify against their husbands. And as you might imagine, it weighed very heavily on the Latter-day Saints and their leaders. In his very last public sermon to the saints, church president John Taylor highlighted the dilemma that they were faced with. Which shall we obey, he said. I would like to obey and place myself in subjection to every law of man. What then? Am I to disobey the law of God? President Taylor had since gone into hiding to avoid prosecution for polygamy. And by the summer of 1887, he was dying. Late on July 14th, a 30-year-old apostle, let those words sink in for just a second, a 30-year-old apostle named Heber J. Grant sought a private meeting in St. George with his quorum president, Wilfred Woodruff, who was nearly 50 years senior to Heber Grant and much wiser, as Elder Grant would live to realize. They discussed the dire political situation, and then they had a long talk about what was really troubling Elder Grant the most, which he said was the sickness of President John Taylor and the changes that would of necessity take place in case of his death. Elder Grant was blunt. He told Wilfred that he was worried that George Q. Cannon, Taylor's nephew and counselor, would preside over the church after John Taylor died, and Heber Grant did not like or trust George Cannon. He liked John Taylor's other counselor, jo Joseph F. Smith, a lot, and Heber Grant felt that Cannon had mistreated the quorum of apostles, whereas Joseph F. Smith was destined to become the greatest among them. So Elder Grant lobbied President Woodruff to endorse Joseph F. as John Taylor's successor. Wilford replied that he would rather see George Cannon and Joseph F. Smith resume their positions in the Quorum of Apostles after President Taylor's death. He said he was willing to sustain Joseph F. Smith as president of the church if all the apostles were, but he did not think that was likely to happen. Well, Heber Grant left that meeting with Wilfred after midnight, feeling like it would indeed be Joseph F. Smith, though he said, it may be my love for him and not the impressions of the spirit. He debated himself in the days that followed. He said, of course I know that President Woodruff must be the president of the church while the first presidency remains unorganized. But I have, and I have unlimited confidence in President Woodruff and can sustain him with all my heart. But 
Heber did not have what he called perfect confidence in George Cannon, and he thought it was certain that President Woodruff would choose George Cannon as a counselor. Then again, Elder Grant described Wilfred Woodruff as a man whose whole ambition is to know the mind and will of God, and who desires with all of his heart and strength to carry out that will after learning it. Heber Grant may have had George Cannon in mind, and he certainly was thinking of himself when he wrote that the humility of President Woodruff is perfect, and an example that men feeling that they possess more ability would do well to pattern after. And then he continued, I am not naturally possessed of the great spirit of humility that I see and admire so much in him. John Taylor died. This is Wilford Woodruff's journal entry for the day. John Taylor died. John Taylor died on July 25th. Telegrams were sent to the apostles who were away. Erastus Snow in Mexico, Brigham Young Jr. and Francis Lyman and John Smith in Arizona, summoning them to Salt Lake City, where Joseph F. Smith had just recently returned from Hawaii. He got the best assignment, I think, in the bunch. I think we have time that we could just uh, dwell on this for just a minute <laughs> and have some fun. If you want to know what I do every day, which I can't imagine, but it's not uh, uh, do it's not advanced technology, as you can tell. <laughs> but it's read stuff like this, so you can see the date. You can see that Wilfred Woodruff likes to make little symbols in his journal. Right at the top there, these uh, arrow-looking marks. Um, it's very characteristic of him to make little figures, little drawings in his journal. Uh, it says, President John Taylor died today at five minutes to eight o'clock. This is a, a reminiscent account. This is not Wilfred Woodruff writing at the moment because he doesn't know John Taylor's dead for a, another day or so. And this is common, Wilford will go back to the day uh, something happened and he'll write about it. So it's important to, to remember that if you're a historian, this is not real time reaction, this is a considered reflective reaction and a polished uh, composition. President John Taylor died today at five minutes to eight o'clock, which lays the responsibility of the care of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints upon my shoulders. Uh, as president of the church or president of the 12 apostles, which is the presiding authority of the church uh, in the absence of the first presidency, this places me in a very peculiar situation, a position I have not looked for during my life, but in the providence of God, it is laid open to me. And I pray God, my heavenly father, to give me grace equal to my day. It is a high and responsible position for any man to occupy and a position that needs great wisdom. I never expected to outlive President Taylor until July 25th, see the day. Cross-referencing his own journal. But it has come to pass. Bishop Edward Hunter is several, in several instances said I should outlive President Taylor and be president of the church I checked him on these occasions and asked him not to prophesy to me upon that subject. He said, nevertheless, it was true. It certainly has come to pass, and I can only, O-W-N-L-Y, that's how Wilfred spells only, say, 
Marvelous are thy ways, O Lord God Almighty, for thou hast certainly chosen the weak thing of this world to perform thy work on the earth. May thy servant Wilfred be prepared, I think, for whatever awaits him on earth and have power to perform whatever is required at his hands by the God of heaven. I ask this blessing of my Heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That's a taste. That's a, a way to get a good sense for who Wilfred Woodruff is. And you can see in him the characteristics that uh, Heber J. Grant saw in, in Wilfred Woodruff. He was returning to Salt Lake City from St. George when he received word that President Taylor had passed away. It was the next day as Wilfred Woodruff was going to bed and he did not sleep well that night. He said, as we've seen, the responsibility of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints lays upon my shoulders. It is a high and responsible position for any man to occupy in a position that needs great wisdom. He prayed that he would be equal to the task. A week later, on August 3rd, 1887, Wilfred convened a meeting of all the apostles who were in Salt Lake City. This included Lorenzo Snow, Franklin D. Richards, Moses Thatcher, John Henry Smith, Francis M. Lyman, Heber J. Grant, John W. Taylor, George Buchanan, and Joseph F. Smith. Wilfred wanted the apostles to sense the significance and scope of their office. So he began by saying that he was the only apostle still alive who had received the temple and down ordinances from Joseph Smith. He told how Joseph bestowed on the apostles all the priesthood keys and powers that he had received from ministering angels and how he commissioned the apostles to lead the Savior's church into the future. Wilfred said Joseph's commission was still ringing in his ears. And then he explained what he had earlier told Heber J. Grant about the apostles, quote, that they presided in all the world when there was no first presidency. And when there was a first presidency, the apostles presided in all the world where the first presidency were not. This might surprise you, but that was in contrast to the views of Salt Lake State President Angus Cannon, George's younger brother, who sometimes reminded apostles that he, not they, presided in his state. <laughs> Several of the apostles, especially the youngest ones, were sensitive to slights like that. They felt they deserved more power than they thought John Taylor had recognized in them. As Wilfred spoke to them, he acknowledged his advanced age, but Elder Grant felt delighted by the wisdom from what he called Wilfred's long and useful life. Elder Grant wrote in his journal entry for the day, There is today no man in the church that has lived nearer to God or that has accomplished more for the advancement of this work than President Woodruff. He is, Heber continued, as humble as a little child. And as near as I can judge, he has no ambition other than to know the mind and will of God and then to wish for the power to do his will. The problem for Elder Grant and for some of the other apostles was Wilfred Woodruff's relationship to George Q. Cannon. Opposition materialized, wrote Thomas Alexander, Wilfred Woodruff's biographer, when it became apparent that Cannon would be Woodruff's choice for first counselor. Wilfred's journal says that the meeting included a good deal of conversation about Cannon. Heber Grant and others were outspoken. They felt Cannon had suppressed evidence of his son's adultery and misappropriation of funds. 
Several of the apostles felt that George Cannon had mitigated the consequences that his son, a former counselor in the church's presiding bishopric, deserved. Cannon offered an explanation, and then the intense meeting recessed while lawyers briefed Wilfred Woodruff and the others about the pending confiscation of church property by the federal government. When the apostles resumed their discussion, they were joined by Daniel Wells, a counselor to the quorum. Is my mic working okay? Mm -hmm. Daniel Wells was a counselor to the quorum, and he passionately urged them to form a new first presidency immediately. That idea fell flat. Too many members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles opposed George Cannon as a counselor. And when the conversation heated up, Wilfred suggested that they change the subject. In the end, George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith resumed their positions in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and that body, not a new first presidency, presided over the church. Wilfred prepared a letter to the saints of God throughout the world. It announced John Taylor's death and assured the saints, quote, God is at the helm and all is well. And then Wilfred linked the past and the present and the future. He said, as upon two former occasions in our history, the duty and responsibility of presiding over and directing the affairs of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in all the world devolves upon the twelve apostles. With the blessing of the Lord and the faith and prayers of his people, we hope to do our duty until we too shall be laid to rest. The letter included counsel to the saints to forgive each other and warnings to avoid unrighteous dominion and to overcome pride. Counsel Wilford meant for himself and the apostles as much as for anyone. It was published in the Millennial Star on August 29, 1887 and signed Wilford Woodruff in behalf of the 12 apostles. Wilfred let matters rest for the next two months. The apostles were at an impasse. They all knew that George Q. Cannon was the smartest among them, including, including George Q. Cannon. <laughs> he was the only one with experience in Washington, D.C., and he managed church finances and the other, other First Presidency matters almost single-handedly as John Taylor's health had declined. He had knowledge and skill and experience and a way with words that Wilfred Woodruff lacked. Wilfred did not dispute that Cannon could be annoying or that his strengths had weaknesses, but he knew that he needed him to lead the Lord's church. The apostles had left their August meeting with gestures of goodwill for each other, but Wilfred knew that they were very much unsettled. Heber J. Grant felt frustrated with himself for not opposing George Cannon more outspokenly. When Wilfred gathered the apostles again on the morning of October 5th, 1887, the day before general conference, he invited them to voice all of their feelings, and they did so for hours. Moses Thatcher critiqued George Cannon's leadership and business practices. Heber Grant listed several grievances with Cannon. John Henry Smith and Francis Lyman shared theirs. Wilfred listened to all of it, and then he told what he personally knew of three prior church presidents, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and John Taylor. He said that he had observed weaknesses in all of them, and he disagreed with all of them from time to time, but he had not assumed that they were accountable to him. They were responsible to God and not to me, he taught. 
And this is the key upon which I wish to treat all these matters. Wilfred acknowledged that George Q. Cannon's failings, that he had failings. But he wanted the apostles to see themselves in these examples, these prior church presidents and George Cannon. If Cannon were not flawed, Wilfred said as he drove this point home, he would not be here with us. <laughs> that was Wilfred's version of Elder Jeffrey O. Holland's teaching, except in the case of his only perfect begotten son. Imperfect people are all God has ever had to work with. That must be terribly frustrating to him, but he deals with it. So should we. And when you see imperfection, remember that the limitation is not in the divinity of the work. As one gifted writer has suggested, when the infinite fullness is poured forth, it's not the oil's fault if there's some loss because finite vessels can't quite contain it all. Those finite vessels include you and me. So be patient and kind and forgiving. Wilfred added a warning to his version of this teaching. He said, if we do not feel to forgive and become united, the spirit of the Lord will not be with us. Wilfred's journal entry for the day says, met with the 12 apostles and sat all day and night until 12 o'clock in trying to settle some difficulties. It was painful. When general conference convened a few hours later, there was no first presidency for the saints to sustain. The next evening, October 6, 1887, the apostles met again for five hours. The discussion got heated, but ended, according to Brigham Young Jr., with differences healed, and we were one again. He thanked the Lord and noted in his journal how desperately the times required a solid head. Five months later, on March 1st, 1888, Wilford noted in his journal, the United States government is now seizing the church property through a receiver, and what the end will be, God only knows. May his will be done. Then he added, this is my birthday. I am 81 years old this day. He felt strongly that the unprecedentedly trying times required a first presidency, and that George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith should be his counselors in it. He spent much of March in council meetings with the apostles, trying to achieve consensus on the matter. On March 20th, he wrote, I am sorry to have to record in my journal that there is quite a division in the quorum of the 12 apostles. Most of the younger brethren are bringing accusations against G.Q. Cannon. We spent a painful day. A spirit of jealousy has crept into the quorum. He said he could not sleep. The next day was worse. The day after that, he said, we spent the whole day in council, the same as the other two days after hearing accusation against Duke Buchanan. Wilford's journal says, I could not sleep at night. Continued a fourth day, a painful day, Wilford Woodruff called it again, saying, I think the most so of anyone so far. The more we tried to get together, the wider apart we were. He noted that there were five apostles against Cannon and six who were sustaining him, adding, I never saw so much bitterness manifest against one good man by five apostles since the days of the apostate 12 against the prophet Joseph Smith in Kirtland. It is painful to record these things, but it is true. Erastus Snow's comments pained Wilford most. Erastus predicted evil consequences follow the association of men who say yes, yes to whatever their leaders say. And he added, sycophants should not be near leaders. 
Erastus went so far as to say that George Cannon's disposition to obedience might not be so good for a counselor in the first presidency. Cannon said that Snow quite, quote, praised my qualities in this respect, but qualified it by conveying the idea that I was too inclined to render too, uh, I was inclined too much to render unquestioned obedience and to submit to whatever the president should say was right. Can, uh, Erastus Snow said he did not know but that I, George Cannon, might have influenced President Woodruff in regard to this matter of the First Presidency, and that if the First Presidency were organized, it would soar above the heads of the Twelve. Well, Wilfred took Erastus Snow's comments personally. It stirred my blood, Wilfred confessed. <laughs> and in turn, he defended George Cannon and took some personal shots at Erastus Snow. Said he didn't know what he was talking about, and that Cannon was not a toady, but Snow was always late to meetings, and he was too hard on the saints, and he had a reputation for nepotism. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't you love to be in these things? <laughs> That's what I do. Or wish I could do. This is a beautiful part. Erastus Snow meekly accepted President Woodruff's rebuke and thanked him for it and hoped that he would continue to admonish him whenever he needed it. For his part, Wilfred knew that he had erred in losing his usual patience and losing his characteristic focus on what was at stake. He asked Erastus to pardon him, and when he reported the exchange to his journal, Wilfred wrote, I went too far in the matter. There was no resolution that night, but after the apostles spent all day Monday together, all was reconciled, Wilfred said meaning that he and Erastus had reconciled, but there was still no resolution on the need for a new first presidency. Over the next few months, Erastus Snow made it clear to Heber J. Grant and Moses Thatcher that he was sorry for his personal actions and he was concerned that all of them were what he, on the, what he called the spiritual precipice. Wilfred Woodruff recognized, meanwhile, that part of what was dividing or driving the younger apostles was a desire to be heard and to be entrusted with meaningful assignments. So he found some common ground with reforms that Heber Grant and Moses Thatcher had proposed, and he assigned them to enact the reforms. Heber Grant's hard feelings gradually thawed, and he in turn warned Moses Thatcher that they needed to end their hostility toward George Cannon. Early in 1889, Wilfred felt like he could again propose to organize the First Presidency. He confided to his secretary that the apostles were so divided on some issues that he would rather attend a funeral than a quorum meeting. <laughs> but at least they were beginning, he said, to see eye to eye. Historian Ronald Walker wrote, the growing consensus was a tribute to Wilfred Woodruff's leadership. A less patient man might have forced a greater confrontation and brought open rupture. At the same time, President Woodruff had held firm to what the Lord had inspired him to do. Wilfred worked with George Cannon and Moses Thatcher to resolve their remaining differences. And on April 5th, 1889, Wilfred proposed to the apostles that they unitedly organize the First Presidency with George Q. Cannon and Joseph F. Smith as his counselors in it. George Cannon said he could accept the calling if he knew that it was God's will and that if every one of his brethren in the quorum would approve of it. Wilfred testified that he knew the proposal was the Lord's mind and will, and this time there was no opposition. Moses Thatcher said of George Cannon, when I vote for him, I shall do so freely, and I will try to sustain him with all my might. 
Wilford's journal entry for that day begins, the 12 apostles met in council and we organized the first presidency by appointing Wilford Woodard president and George Buchanan and Joseph F. Smith counselors. The rest of that day was packed with pressing business and concerns and so was the next. Wilfred Woodruff wrote of it, I was constantly overwhelmed. The next day he wrote, this seven day of April, 1889, was one of the most important days of my life. For upon this Sabbath day, I was appointed the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints by the unanimous voice of 10,000 Latter-day Saints. Wilfred then asked God to protect me during my remaining days and give me power to magnify my calling to the end. It would take all the wisdom, discernment, and faith that Wilfred had accumulated to lead the Latter-day Saints through what came next. And of course, he was ready. He was sure that the Lord has watched over me from my birth until the present day. In early June, President Woodruff became sick. I suffered everything but death, he wrote in his journal. My family thought I would die. When his health returned, he held a constant stream of private meetings, conferences, and Temple recommend interviews. It makes you tired to read a, a President Woodruff's journal. And the older he got, he didn't seem to slow down at all. He just, he's a, I never known any historical figure to be as much of a workhorse as Wilfred Woodruff was. And that includes whether he's uh, shoveling out a privy, uh, cleaning out a, an outhouse, uh, or a barnyard, or uh, doing temple ordinances all day, all day, every day sometimes. Temple recommend interviews all day. Um, I've just never seen anything like it, and it's all a testament to his love for the Lord and for the restoration of the gospel. One of his meetings in mid-August was with President Cannon and John McLaren who was a member of the Utah Commission. That was the government committee tasked with enforcing the laws that prevented the Latter-day Saints from voting. McLaren urged President Woodruff to end plural marriage. He dwelt upon the gravity of the situation and what measures we might expect to have enacted against us, President Woodruff said, rather President Cannon said. President Woodruff characterized the meeting this way. He told us what the government would do with us. Now President Woodruff had to discern what to do about plural marriage as the campaign against it intensified. Historian Jed Woodworth wrote, a humble, simple, unassuming man with little of President Cannon's learning, President Woodruff arrived at the conclusion that a change had to be made long before Cannon did. President Woodruff was presiding over a state conference in September 1889. President Cannon was with him, and between conference sessions, when the state president asked a hard question uh, like this, given the situation, the state president said, he wondered if he should issue temple recommends to people who were planning to use them to enter plural marriages. President Woodruff related a revealed precedent. He drew on Doctrine and Covenants section 124 and explained that when the Lord commanded the saints in Jackson County to build a temple and their enemies prevented them from doing it, he accepted the offering, and the consequences fell upon the people who would not let them obey that command of God. President Woodruff then said that the saints should not begin any new plural marriages in the territory. George Cannon was shocked. So when President Woodruff said, here's President Cannon, he can say what he thinks about the matter. He said nothing. 
He did put in his journal, this is the first time that I have heard President Woodruff express himself so plainly upon this subject. And therefore, I was not prepared to fully acquiesce in his expressions, for to me, it is an exceedingly grave question. And it is the first time that anything of this kind has ever been uttered, to my knowledge, by one holding the keys. It was a year later before President Woodruff knew for sure that the time had come to bring an end to plural marriage. By then, President Cannon was ready for the revelation, too. When he arrived at President Woodruff's office on the morning of September 23, 1890, President Cannon found President Woodruff quite stirred up in his feelings concerning the steps our enemies have taken to malign us before the country and to make false statements concerning our teaching and action. He felt it was his duty to get out some kind of manifesto. President Woodruff retreated to a private room with his secretary and dictated a statement. He came out of the room later with a calm, contented look on his face. The next day, President Woodruff met with his counselors and the available apostles. He read the document to them and then he requested feedback. A few rounds of rev revisions were made and then it was published. President Cannon proposed that a word be changed here and there, but he said this whole matter has been at President Woodruff's own insistence. He has felt strongly impelled to do what he has and he has spoken with great plainness to the brethren in regard to the necessity of something of this kind being done. He has stated that the Lord had made it plain to him that this was his duty, and he felt perfectly clear in his mind that it was the right thing. President Woodruff's journal entry for the next day, September 25, 1890, says, I have arrived at a point in the history of my life as president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints where I'm under the necessity for the temporal salvation of the church. Uh, the United States government has taken a stand and passed laws to destroy the Latter-day Saints. And after praying to the Lord and feeling inspired by his spirit, I have issued the following proclamation, which is sustained by me and the 12 apostles. The document we now know as official declaration one in the Doctrine and Covenants followed, telling President Woodruff's intentions and efforts to submit to all the laws of the United States. When the apostles met on Thursday, October 2nd, two days before general conference, they discussed what, if anything, to do with the document at conference. Some apostles advocated reading it at the conference and others said not to. Some said they should seek a sustaining vote for it at conference <coughs> and others opposed that. President Woodruff asked President Cannon for his views. Cannon replied that his mind was unclear. President Woodruff alone would make the final decision. On Monday morning, October 6, 1890, Orson Whitney read the manifesto, as it was then called, to the saints assembled in conference. And then Lorenzo Snow, president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, said, I move that, recognizing President Wilfred Woodruff as the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and the only man on the earth at the present time who holds the keys of the sealing ordinances, we consider him fully authorized by virtue of his position to issue the manifesto which has been read in our hearing and which is dated September 24, 1890, and that as a church and general conference assembled, we accept his declaration concerning plural marriages as authoritative and binding. The saints sustained that proposal, and then out of the blue, President Woodruff called on President Cannon to speak. I felt to shrink very much from it, President Cannon recorded in his journal. I was never called upon to do a thing that seemed more difficult than this. He was at an unusual loss for words. His mind was blank. He knew that whatever he had to say must be inspired by the Spirit of the Lord. And then he remembered what President Woodruff had taught the state president a year earlier. 
from the Doctrine and Covenants, section 124, verse 49. <coughs> the Lord speaking, When I give a commandment to any of the sons of men to do a work unto my name, and those sons of men go with all their might and with all they have to perform that work, and their enemies come upon them and hinder them from performing that work, behold, it behooveth me to require that work no more at the hands of those sons of men, but to accept of their offerings. It is on this basis, President Cannon explained, that President Woodruff has felt himself justified in issuing this manifesto. He was speaking freely now and without fear. He knew, as he explained, that some saints opposed this change while others wondered why it had taken so long. He confessed that he had been in the first camp, but that he now knew President Woodruff had acted on the Lord's will in the Lord's time. Mindful of, but not dictated by, the pressures from outside and inside the church. We have awaited for the Lord to move in the matter, President Cannon explained. He said President Woodruff made up his mind that he would write something, and he had the spirit of it. He had prayed about it, and had besought God repeatedly to show him what to do. President Cannon testified, I know that it was right, much as it has gone against the grain with me in many respects. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> President Woodruff rose from his seat and spoke next. He promised the saints that the Lord would not let him lead them astray, and they believed him. He had steered them safely through one of the most perilous passages in sacred history. Wilfred Woodruff was the prophet to lead the Latter-day Saints in those trying times, and President Russell M. Nelson is the prophet to lead the saints in these trying times. It is really hard to lead, it's really easy to get on the internet and critique leaders, but it's really hard to actually lead. It's especially hard to cultivate consensus on the horns of a dilemma or two, while myopic spectators and commentators doubt you and dispute your methods and your motives. So I'm very grateful for the humble and strong and inspired leadership of Wilfred Woodruff. I'm very grateful that he and others documented this history so well. I'm strengthened for the present and for the future by knowing that the Lord and his prophets have guided us safely through perilous times in the past. And I would not have any of that knowledge or the faith and hope that comes from it if Wilfred Woodruff had neglected to record it. Whenever I tell this story, people tell me they've never known it before. And that's because they have not had access to the Wilfred Woodruff papers before. So what if there was a organization dedicated to telling the whole world this story and a thousand other ones buried in the Wilfred Woodruff papers? True stories that show how the Lord leads his people through perilous times by prophets. Well, there is an organization, and you can visit its fruits at wilfredwoodruffpapers.org. You can find this story and many, many others just as inspiring and instructive. I testify to you that God will guide the future as he has the past, as the hymn book says. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. In every change, be faithful will remain. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen.